Hello, everybody. Welcome to part three of the podcast. Uh, quarter to 11 at night. <laughs> uh, recording this in my car, holding the microphone in front of my mouth. Um, yeah, trying to make sure I don't wake uh, wake the family. So, and I want to get the podcast out to you. So, you know, these are the lengths I'll go to. So, I hope you appreciate it. It's freezing, really, really cold. So, um, so yeah. So, in part three, getting back to more important matters, uh, we discuss uh, the future of practical karate. Uh, we discuss teaching, and we discuss the miscellaneous sections as well. Uh, all the questions this year have been really good, but I'm particularly happy with the teaching section. Uh, so I hope you find that uh, useful because you know we don't always get to talk about that side of things in that much depth. But um, so yeah, I hope you find that interesting. So uh, yes, I, I am going to record the outro <laughs> and then get out of the car. So uh, I'll hand you over to me, and I hope you enjoy. Oh yeah, part three. Yeah, just uh, see, I would record this because I forgot it. I'm not really recording anything. It's freezing. Okay, you're getting everything on the first take, but I forgot. Um, I didn't record. Do uh, the car go past? <laughs> I didn't uh, record as many adverts as I should have done. Uh, It seems that I talked for longer this year than I did uh, last year. So, yeah, there's no adverts at all in this in this section. uh, In in case you were you were wondering, right? Okay, that's it. That's all you're getting. This is the first take introduction. Uh, All right, okay. I'll hand you over to myself. I hope you enjoy the content. I'll be back for the outro. I'll speak to you soon. So in this section we're talking about taking practical karate forwards. The first question is from uh, Peter Prokopiewicz. Hope I pronounced your surname correctly there, Peter. And he said, ever since I transitioned from 3K last year, I've heard mention from other podcasts of yours of the so-called reality revolution. Considering how dogmatic 3K groups and organisations still exist today, perhaps it would be more apt to call it the reality evolution instead. The rate of conversion does seem to be far more gradual than the original name would imply. I, I, I don't think so, Peter. Those who were in British martial arts in the 1990s will remember that reality revolution, and that was spearheaded by two of my most influential instructors, that's Peter Constein and Jeff Thompson. Uh, So in the 1990s, both of those guys came out together with the British Combat Association and forcefully and articulately pointed out how the approach to self-defense that a lot of martial artists had was was faulty. Uh, and that did have a revolutionary effect. It was, it was massive. You know, uh, uh, things that people take for granted today were not commonplace then. And that reality revolution gave a platform for people like me to stand upon. So that, that helped me get my voice as well. Because Jeff and Peter kind of point out these problems and then I point them and say, yeah, they're right. And from a karate perspective, here's what we do about it. It's hard to understate, you know, the change that happened at that time. But if you think of any British martial artist you can think of that teaches things in a functional way, they will have their roots in that reality revolution. So not just in karate either, you know, you think of people like, you know, Lee Morrison and Jamie Club and others, that they were part of that too. That they were given that platform by what happened at that time. And now, of course, once that revolution is over, <laughs> um, things settle down a bit. And, and those people who've been given that platform by that revolution then continue to talk about these things. So, so uh, there's not that revolutionary overnight change that there was in the kind of culture. It's now more of a slow, slower burn. I would think it'd be fair to say. Uh, however, it's I don't think it's that slow because what it depends in the circles you move in. I, f- I find this conversation a lot. So, so if you're um, part of a 3K group and they're the martial artists you're training with, it seems like every martial artist you know practices karate in a 3K way. Well, it's the exact opposite for me. You know, I, I, I travel globally. And what I'm seeing is more and more and more functional karate people doing better and better stuff. I'm seeing it on YouTube. I'm seeing it on Instagram. Uh, That change is is strong and getting stronger. But I can understand if you're not directly plugged into that, how you may not see it. So I think that that definitely the right term 
was reality revolution because when we use that term we're referring to that time period in the 1990s within the UK and that definitely had a, a, a sea change moment the, the effects of which are still reverberating uh, today um, now, of course that doesn't mean that everybody changed overnight and obviously that, that, that slower evolution for some but, but yeah there was definitely a, revol uh, a, a revolution with the right term for what happened in the 1990s there's another uh, related uh, question from Peter. He said, how many different reactions have you had to your heresy? <laughs> uh, uh, with one extreme being those who embrace it wholeheartedly and the other being wholehearted rejection of it. Um, yeah, so uh, you do get differing extremes, you know. So you get some people who see it, instantly fall in love with it. That's the karate they want to do. You get other people who uh, instantly see it and they don't want to do it. And that's fine. You know, I, I'm not a grand believer in this hard sell approach because I think it just turns people off. So I, I, I will be forceful in my opinions and I do state my opinions honestly, truthfully and directly. Right. But, but having done that, I don't demand that everyone thinks the same as I do. If, if they want to go, a different route well that's up to them i'll put forwards my evidence i'll state my case and if it appeals to them great and if it doesn't that's fine i wish them all the best with whatever it is that they want to do but you do get you know the, those extreme reactions that the ones who strongly reject it tends to be because they feel it's somehow undervaluing what they already have done which of course it hasn't it, it, it doesn't I, I i always think that uh, getting exposed to the practical side of karate should be like finding out that your house has another wing. You know, so you, you kind of open a door and, they, oh, wow, there's two rooms in here. I didn't even know we had. That, that doesn't devalue from the other rooms of the house. It adds value. So if someone's spent a lot of time getting good at kata and then the bunkai comes along, you know, they can go, do you know that stuff that you've been doing all, spent all this time? There's so much within that, right? It's great that you know how to move well. It's great that you've learned that kata. Now let me show you what we can do with it. Uh, it, it doesn't detract from anything. So, and, and I think it's important that those who want to see practical art grow, um, don't come at it so hard where we kind of turn people off you know what we need to be doing is selling it on its strength that doesn't mean we have to you know pussyfoot around it doesn't mean we have to uh, sugarcoat the message we can say these things honestly and truthfully but 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 in order to win people over i think we then need to go if you don't want to do it that's fine you know so when i when i've had people who've just gone i'm not interested in i think you're completely wrong that's okay you know i'm happy with doing what i'm doing i'm glad you're happy doing what you're doing So the next question is from Ali Whittick, and he goes, what will karate be like by 2030? And no one really knows, right? But what, one thing I can say is that we will definitely be in a much healthier position from a functional perspective by then, because you can see that already. You know, so I, I've been uh, writing about this now for 20-odd years, and, and I've seen a sea change in those 20 years in the way that people approach karate. The amount of seminar requests that I get is so great now I can't keep up with it. The, the, the number of attendees is greater than ever. The number of people who, instructors, who are looking to adopt a more pragmatic approach is greater than ever now now of course there'll be some people who say yeah well i'm not seeing it but you've got to ask yourself are you in a vantage point to see it so if you belong to a 3k group and you're practicing in a 3k club then you're not going to see it what what i can say is from my perspective like even simple any measure you like that the, the number of podcast downloads even though you know i don't do them as regularly it goes up and up and up the number of youtube views again is up and up and up the seminar requests are up and up and up you know and that's not just me either you know i think anyone who's doing the practical karate stuff is finding that there's there's a big audience for that now the, the guy who's still trying to teach kick punch block karate he's finding the exact opposite you know what he's finding is there's a diminishing interest in, in what it um, in, in what they have to, to offer and the other thing is the public are better educated now which is a good thing too so you know if you if someone went to a club and he said look i'm going to teach the most deadly technique ever it's called an oizuki and all you need to do is punch the air for 40 years and then you'll be invincible they're not going to go well, i ain't going to do that you know they'll do a web search and 30 seconds later they find about the karate club that trains in a functional pragmatic and more enjoyable way and that's the kind of karate they're going to do so i, I think you know I, I would be very surprised if the uh 
functional approach that you know that those listening to this podcast will adapt, I would be very surprised if that's not mainstream by then. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much mainstream now, but I mean, there's more people practicing in a pragmatic way than in a non-pragmatic way. I'd be very surprised if that's not the case in, in the next 10 years, based on what I've seen over the last 10 years. So the next question is from Les Bupke, the Les Bupke, author of Anxious Black Belt, for those yet to read that superb book. It says, we talked about it last time, but maybe others would be interested in your opinion. While copying the work of others, modifying or not, should we give credit? What's your take on it? So, um... It's a really nuanced one, and whether you give credit or not, I think, depends on a a number of things. Because, firstly, there's a difference between copying and learning. So, if somebody learns something from me, at a certain point, that becomes theirs, because that's the learning process, right? So, you wouldn't then expect them to give credit every time they go on and practice it or teach it, because it's now theirs. So, so given an example, when I'm teaching in my class... Uh, I, I, let's say we do front punch. I don't say to my students, oh yeah, this is front punch, and I learnt this kind of, you know, best part of four decades ago from this person. And then when we do, and this pad drill we learnt from, and this throw I learnt from. If I, if I did that, it would drive them nuts. So at a certain point, my instructors acknowledge, yeah, we taught Ian that, and it's now Ian's, because that's the learning process. So if a student asks, you know, oh, that's a nice technique, you know, what's the lineage of it? I can tell them that. But, but you wouldn't, automatically give it every single time because it would become laborious you know so in that sense i don't think you need to give credit every single time you do something uh, if you if you direct copying the work of someone else so you haven't spent a period of time learning from someone so let's say you learn a drill on the saturday at a seminar and then on you know the monday you're teaching it to your students i think then it's it's polite to simply go, oh yeah, I learnt this drill at the weekend. This isn't mine, but you know, let's work on it. When they've done that for you know a number of years, again, I don't think there's a need that every time they practice it, they have to give you know a, a lineage for that drill. It, it's now became theirs. Of course, there are copyright issues that that come in here as well. So if you were to take the work of somebody, like you read someone's book and then you regurgitate the book as your you know your own without modification without additional thought without comment or critique you know you just basically parrot fashion pass off someone's ideas as your own then that's clearly copyright infringement so there's legal elements there but but yeah i I think you know so there's a law element to it uh but for me i think if you have learned something from someone else it's polite to give credit but at a certain point it does become theirs you know i mean like like cat is a good example right you know there's millions of people practice the pinan cutters how many of them when they practice them every class go right class before we start i think it's important to learn that this cutter was created by anko itosu itosu who taught it to this guy who taught it to this guy who taught it to this guy who taught it to me you know at a certain point we just accept that those cutters are ours it's nice to know the lineage and history but we don't need to give credit every single time so i think a lot of it it, it, it depends it's certainly polite and good manners to give credit if uh, you uh, you're, you're showing the drill of another but there's a difference between copying and learning and i think when you've been through that learning process at some point that drill becomes yours i mean who owns front kick who has the copyright on front kick they cer- at a certain point we just acknowledge, acknowledge it's communal property who owns kashanku kata we all do it's communal so so and that should happen will happen with with drills and ideas as time goes on it becomes uh, communal uh, communal property so the next question is from Dan Bryan. He said, with karate being included in the 2020 Olympics, what do you think the impact will be on karate? So this is an interesting one because we have discussed this in previous Q&A podcasts, but obviously things have moved on uh, um, since the, the last time we did this. So we now know karate will be in the 2020 Olympics. It will not be in the 2024 Olympics, right? So it's got this one-off shot while the Olympics are there. So my... and, and, and my. Other than that, my position hasn't really changed because I, I think that um, I'm delighted for the athletes who've worked that hard uh, for them to have a shot at Olympic gold. You know, I, I'm really pleased for them because that's that's a lot of work they've put in, uh, and so to be able to have that opportunity, I'm really pleased for them. It, it has little bearing on how I'll do karate because that's not the kind of karate I do, so it, it has no impact. I, my karate will not be changed one iota no matter what happens with the sports side of things, so I'm doing it differently. Now, there is a concern that, well, maybe the public's perception of karate will change. But but again, I think that's karate care over-egging the interest the general public will have in this. You know, because it's going to be... No no one's going to... It's 
stop up till four in the morning to watch the karate finals, other than martial artists, right? So you and I will watch it, you know, but, but most people won't. Unless someone from your home nation wins gold, in which case they may show it on a highlight reel, most people won't see any of it. Right, or if or if they do, it'll be that little kind of like highlight reel, you know. So they'll see, you know, this is a member of our country winning the gold. Here's the last ten seconds of the bout. That's not going to have a massive influence on the public's perception of karate, right? Things like movies, YouTube, popular culture, TV shows—they're going to have a bigger impact. You know, how people perceive karate than the Olympics will. So I don't think it'll make a massive difference uh, at all, especially now we know it's going to be a one-off. At best, it would have been like 30 seconds of highlight footage once every four years, right, for, 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 for most people. If someone from your nation wins a gold or does really well, you know, wins a medal. Uh, now we know it's just going to be a one-off. So I, I'm pleased for those people who are involved in it, but I don't think it's going to have any meaningful impact on gun karate going forwards at all. Well, next question is from Christopher Webb. He said, uh, we regularly talk about what the past masters have given us and what key events in history have had the most significant impact on how we train. My question is this, what do you think the next significant impact will be to the martial arts? What do you think technology will bring us uh, in the future to enhance our training experience? So there's kind of two questions there. So next significant change, again, you can never be sure on all these things, so you're kind of making a prediction. But one of the things that I have noted was for a long time, I've been pushing the importance of context. I, I've said that I believe a failure to differentiate between contexts is the biggest problem in modern day martial arts, right? So people mix up martial arts, fighting, self-defense, they blur it all together, they get very confused about what's what. So my thinking has always been we need to clearly demarcate what we're training for in any given instance that doesn't mean we can only train for one thing we can train for lots of things but to get the most efficient training outcome we need to be clear on what our goal is and how we train for that now i've been saying that for quite a while you know that we need to, and i've seen in the last two years particularly the last year where that thinking is starting to permeate you know, so it's not just me. There's been plenty like me who've made the point as well, but I've been one of them. And, and, and I see more and more people realizing that fighting has its own inherent value. Martial arts have their own inherent value. Uh, um, uh, self-defense is not just physical skills. There's a whole wider skill set with it. That seems to be percolating through into popular thinking. So, which is a very positive thing. And if that continues, and I'm sure it will, because there's more and more people spreading that message, that will be the next significant change, that we will see the value that all the inherent uh, uh, elements have. You know, fighting is good for fighting, martial arts are good for martial arts, self-defense is its own thing. They all overlap, but they're all a little bit different. You know, we'll, we'll start to see this a little bit more, train more directly and efficiently, and judge everything on its own merits. So we get away from this thing of, well, that's sport, that's not good self for self-defense. No, it's not, but it's good sport. Do you, know, do you know what I mean? And, and things that self-defense alone, you're missing out on so much that everything else has to offer. You know? But that that, that uh, contextualization, that's definitely starting to take a foothold. So I'm hoping that will be one of the next significant changes, that it becomes standard. Well, it may take a while, but I think things are heading that way. So in terms of uh, technology... Uh, one thing I can see happening is is uh, protective equipment coming on in leaps and bounds, right? So it, you can imagine the wide-scale applications of a material that was able to take force to a specific area and dissipate it over a far wider area. Right, so that would be useful in industry. Uh, it would be useful uh, for cyclists, you know, as a head guard, you know, all kinds of um, um, uses for that kind of protective equipment. So, if we were able to design or create a new material that was superb at doing that, better than the stuff we've got now, then obviously protective equipment would be improved. 
which would enable us to spar in a way uh, that would all, uh, allow us to be a little bit more vigorous with without, again, sustaining significant injuries, you see. So I can see uh, protective equipment improving. So you can imagine, like, a, you could possibly wear a vest that when you hit that vest, it dissipates the force over the entire vest, so there's little chance of injury. Head contact's always going to be an issue, right, because of the way the head is. But I can see us being able to develop uh, armour suits where we can kick the legs far harder, punch the body far harder, and the person inside it um, feels okay because the force is dissipated over a, a, a much wider area, right? So I, that's, you know, I think protective equipment's likely to be one of the things. Uh, I don't think there's going to be like any massive technological advancement is in virtual reality sparring and all that kind of stuff. I think that's a, a long way off and probably would be of <laughs> little value beyond novelty anyway, right? So, so, so yeah, hopefully contextualization is going to continue to improve and I can see uh, protective equipment improving uh, if we develop uh, better quality materials and there's bound to be the money in that too because of its wide scale application. This is not something that just martial artists would care about. So I can imagine that there's probably teams of people looking at that even now so that might be something we see in the not too distant future so next question is from uh, jesus penada i hope i pronounced that correctly he said what advice would you have to try and open up my group's uh, thinking to add some more aliveness into sparring including other techniques like throws etc uh, again it's important that you know we do include live practice within training but it needs to be done in a structured way and some of the objections to it are um firstly it's not karate when you do, so i think there if you can share with them information that shows that uh things like throwing and locking were always part of old school karate and there's lots of evidence for that that can help you know quotes from the old masters can help you know saying they were, they were always in here and then the other objection people have is they worry about safety you know, okay, yeah, we, we, but if we did throws, people would get hurt. So it, it's being able to show them that there's ways and means in which you can slowly and gradually build up the life practice so that it's safe. So um, they're, they're the, the, the two key things, I would think, is, you know, if you've got a, a group that has strong objections to a method, it's normally because they see uh, it's not part of karate, in which case you need to demonstrate it is, or they go, oh, but it can't be practiced safely, in which case we need to be able to demonstrate that, yes, it can be. And next question from Gary Hood, he says, what is the best way to try and introduce the practical karate side of kata to people who have views, uh, who don't understand things like that the angle of the kata represents the angle in relation to the enemy? So that's, that's really good things. This So this relates to um, Jesus's question as well is, this is why I like to quote the past masters a lot. Now, it's not because I feel bound by them. You know, it's, it, you know, it's in terms of, you know, that I, I'm almost, they're like, their word is canon. They're, you know, that's not the, what it is for me. It's because I find it, it's a useful way to communicate to fellow karateka that this isn't me being a maverick and trying to introduce something that was never there. This is me trying to bring something back that was there and then to move it forward. So, so for example, Gary gives the example of the angles in kata. Well, you just point to what Mabuni wrote about. You know, Mabuni's, you know, the purpose of angles in kata is not well understood, and this has led to some people, this kata is for fighting eight people, or, some, or some other such nonsense, is the, the quote. And then Mabuni makes a logical argument how the angle is not the angle the enemy is attacking you from, because that would be highly unreasonable, you know, and, and, and the applications would be too meagre. He then explains that the angle in the kata represents the angle you shift to. So I think by giving people, look, this isn't Ian Abernethy saying it, or this isn't Gary Hood saying it, this is Mabuni saying it right and here's some practical examples of how it works so and, and again like you know jesus you know if you said um yeah i want to introduce throwing they go oh but there's no throwing in karate that's judo you know so in you just quote funakoshi you know the striking and kicking is not the only method in karate throwing and pressure against joints are also included you know and, and then you can show it look here's pictures of funakoshi doing throwing techniques so so i think in order to move forwards and to help bring some of our number with us i think when they realize it has that historical legitimacy that's enough to open the door to get them to consider it so so yeah having that knowledge can be, can be really useful to be able to say to them look this is legit because this is what the old masters said you know the, it's it's not us that are wrong it's it's if you're saying that throws aren't part of karate you're wrong the, the, you know, you can say you don't want to do it in your karate now, but it, it was part of karate in the past. To say the angles don't represent the angle you assume relative to the enemy, you're wrong. Because Mabuni <coughs> wrote about this in the past. So yeah, yeah, how, knowing your history, perhaps paradoxically, can be a useful way to take karate forwards.
So we've now got some questions around teaching. So the first is from Ryan Parriott. He said, how do you decide what to teach at your seminars if you're not asked for something specific? Vast majority of the time, there's something specific. So the, the, the host or the group have got in touch because they want me to teach a particular element of what I do. Uh, there are some occasions where they go, well, we want you to come and teach, but we're not quite sure what. Uh, or what you feel would be most appropriate for for our students. So that's just done through discussion. You know, so I'll ask them what they're working on, what cutters they practice, what elements they feel strong about, what elements they maybe feel they need some help with, uh, what grades the students are, so on and so forth. Bounce it back and forth until uh, we've got something that I think, yep, that will be a perfect uh, package of information for them and they feel the same way. So yeah, just through discussion typically. Uh, and Ryan also asks, he says, what are your uh, definitions of each Dan rank? In other words, what would you expect from a second Dan or a third Dan compared to a first? Well, I have a, a specific syllabus for 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 our group, um, but and, and it wouldn't be appropriate to break all that down now because that that's a lot of information. Uh, but th- there is a marked difference between each of the Dan grades in, in two key things. So the first one is the 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 scope of knowledge. So we're adding new kata, new bunkai drills, new techniques and to the, to the to syllabus. But we also want to see a improvement in the core skills too. So the second dan should be throwing a reverse punch better than the first dan. So there's that, you know, just that improvement in the quality of what they do and the expansion of the quantity as well. So we see both through all the Dan grades. In Dan grades generally as well, one of the things that I think we, we really need to get our heads around in karate is that uh, there is no universal definition of what a Dan grade should be. And I think that's a good thing, because if we try to establish that definition, you can guarantee it with the tyranny of the mediocre. Because there's more mediocre karateka than there are good karateka. So they would go, okay, this is what we want. And, and, and for me and mine, it would be a drop in the standard, which, which I, I would never want, right? So I think it's good that we have these, these differentiations. Uh, but we need to accept that within that, that means the Dan grades are internal markers only. So a second Dan in one group cannot be compared to a second Dan in another group. Uh, gradings are internal markers only. Right? And, and that's it. And that's the way they should be viewed. So if someone says to you, you know, I'm a fifth Dan, means nothing. You know, because that, that, it, depending the group that he's a member of, that will determine what he's had to do for that group. Now, I know some people do their own students grade them. You know, they have a committee based on students or, uh, they just say, oh, well, you've been a fourth Dan for five years. He's a fifth Dan. Or the, or the, you know, the requirements are just ridiculously low that are requested. On the other hand, you have people who, have very demanding tests for those levels, you know, so any downgrade can mean everything or nothing depending on who awarded it. So when someone tells me, oh, I'm a third Dan, you know, I normally go, oh, yeah, right, okay, who awarded you that? And then if they name the group and the association and know them, I think, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's some achievement. Oh, oh wow, yeah, doesn't really mean that much, you know. Um, so it, it, it depends, you know, um, so you can't compare downgrades. The downgrades are internal markers only, and it's always, uh, its value is who or what awarded that grade. So in my case, you know, my, my, the seventh down was awarded to me by Peter Constantine, the ninth down. So I, you know, I respect Peter. I believe he's an incredibly knowledgeable guy. So the seventh down means a lot to me because it's an endorsement from Peter, who's someone I greatly respect. Uh, if I did, and I have had this, get some s- s- relative stranger emailing me saying, we'd like to give you an eighth Dan or a seventh Dan or whatever, I've turned them down. Because sometimes these are from people either I don't respect, and I know they're doing it to just try and bring me in their fold, so to speak, or they're just trying to make, you know, political connections, which again, doesn't mean anything to me, you know, so in that case, I've turned them down, you know, like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks, I'm always polite about it, but it, it, you know, it it doesn't mean anything, so in in terms of, yeah, the differences between them, there should be creeps in uh, scope and quality as well, from group to group, it's always entirely different, uh, and I think we should acknowledge the fact that it is entirely different. Gradings are internal markings only, and its value compared to you and others is ultimately dependent on who gave you it and why. So the next question is from Jamie Gray. He says, how important is it to study the terminology of karate, whether it's old Okinawan uh, or Japanese, or for that matter, Chinese? And what are your thoughts on whether we should spend more time learning and teaching in these languages and pass them forwards or just ditch it all for English? Uh, my personal view on this is... Uh, I take the middle ground. So I can understand how for some people, part of the attraction 
is uh, the Japanese culture, and they want to learn the terminology uh, for those cultural reasons. Uh, I can also understand people going, I just want to learn to kick and punch, and it's why complicate the issue, so we'll ditch all of the languages and we'll go fully for the English. Uh, that makes sense to me too. Uh, for me, uh, as someone who travels a lot, I find knowing common Japanese terminology is useful. So, for example, I taught a seminar in Germany this year. Most of the time I teach in Germany, uh, the English is of a really high level. I can just speak in English and never a problem. But sometimes there are some people there who don't speak any English. I don't speak any German. But if we're communicating, I can use the Japanese terminology and, okay, they get that. You know what I mean? So so, so that that, that can help. It, it gives that, that, that common terminology. But uh, So for me, it's useful. In the dojo, we use a mix of them both. We use the English and the Japanese. And if my downgrades, if there was a downgrade who didn't understand the Japanese terms or never got to grips with them, I wouldn't care less. You know, it, it's as long as you can kick and punch. I always say no one's ever won a fight with terminology, right? You know, what matters is how well you can actually do the techniques. To paraphrase Shakespeare, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Right, so no matter what you call that punch, when it smashes into his face, it doesn't hit any harder because you call it a gakazuki as opposed to a cross. Right, so so you, you, I think you can use use whatever terminology you want to use. The, the one the one where I do have strong objections is when people use Japanese terminology to try and show how clever they are, or uh, you know, so they're using complex Japanese terminology when simple English English terminology would do. That that to me is just bad teaching. You just confusing the students and you're putting in another element of, uh, of, of, of unnecessary learning there. Okay, so uh, for me, yeah, somewhere between the two. You know, and again, I think that's down to the individual. If you are someone who loves the Japanese culture and your students are someone who loves the Japanese culture, then you're going to have to pass on all that terminology and you'll enjoy doing it too. If you're someone who just cares about the fighting, you can, uh, you know, the combative use of it, you can ditch all the, 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 the Japanese terminology and you won't lose anything for having done so. For me, as someone who travels and teaches overseas a lot I, I'll, I take that kind of middle ground with it and, and I use both in my own teaching but if my students didn't understand the Japanese I wouldn't care less to be honest so the next question is from uh, Christian O'Brien. He said, uh, my question is, how do you keep yourself and your students motivated? You can't teach drive and desire. Motivation ebbs and flows throughout the year. What can we do to pick ourselves up when you're just ready to be done with it all or when you can see your students have hit a wall? Uh, you can't teach drive and desire. That's true. But you can encourage it. Uh, and for me, as, as, as a, uh, an instructor, that's what I want to try and do. So first thing is, uh, if I'm enthusiastic about teaching, that tends to foster an environment where students are enthusiastic about learning. Uh, and, and again, that, that creates a, like a, a positive cycle because the students are enthusiastic, so I'm enthusiastic, so the students are enthusiastic. I, th I think when, if my motivation starts to dip, theirs will. So my Part of this is, you know, I've got to like uh, lift them, okay, uh, and and in, and in turn it starts a cycle going. However, there are definitely some students who train karate for so long and they just go, it's not for me, you know, and and I'm not failing, nor are they failing in that decision. They might say, I've did did karate for a bit, I'm not enjoying it. I want to move on and do other things. I think it's a problem there if you look at the student and go, well, you've just failed to keep your motivation up. Or you look at yourself and go, well, I just failed to keep them motivated. It may be that, but often as not, they've just, it, it's run its course for them. So it's always good. Well, you know, I'm glad you enjoyed it while you were here. Um, if it's not for you, that's fine. If you ever want to come back, you know where we are. I hope you find something that does, you know, enthuse you. It's fine to do that as well. As regards students, uh, another thing that often demotivates them, though, is that they feel when they're not making progress can be a big thing. So they feel they're just treading water and all um, the progress is now slight and difficult. So I, I always think goal setting can help. So I, I've got some students, the, the, the simple goal for them is, look, all we care about is getting this one technique right or getting it incrementally better. And if they can feel that happens for them, they'll go, oh, great, I've made some progress. And that can help keep them motivated. Now, you might have another student who's just you know, he sees a technique once and you do it perfect immediately. But I think for a lot of people, so long as they're feeling they're making uh, progress, you know, that, that's the thing I would try and do with students. So if you say if students have hit a wall, uh, I would try and try and identify to them things that we can be working on and point out to them that improvement. I think that can help. For your own motivation as well, it's a matter of keeping an eye on it too. You know, you need to train in ways that keep you enthused. So if a particular form of training is starting to get boring, think, how can I... Um, 
train this in another way. So if you find him working a particular cut as boring, you know, how can I mix it up? Maybe if I work different sections of the cut, uh, uh, you know, if you find physical training is getting boring, you know, I'm getting bored with weightlifting, well, maybe try kettlebells or TRX or something else, you know what I mean? So there's that uh, repetition by stealth thing, you know, change is as good as a rest. So sometimes there's more than one way in which to train something. And trying to uh, identify that, but you know, but that can happen too. You know, I, I've I've known people who've done karate for years and years and years, and 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 they've just got to a point where they're, I'm done with it. I want to move on to something else. And and, and the, if they feel I'm done with it and that's sad, then maybe we can look to you know, okay, how can we get you re-motivated? But if they just feel I'm done with it and I'm happy about that, I think that's fair enough. Uh, next one's from Craig Stewart in Australia. He said, uh, why do you settle on the bunker you use for you and your club? Uh, I like them and find them easy to understand. If I use them, am I becoming an Abernethy dojo? Are you okay for people uh, to use your ideas? So we'll break them down a bit. Uh, in terms of the bunker that me and the club settle on, that's stuff that I'd been you know, analysing, working, playing with. Eventually, when we uh, we became an independent group, we, we already, for a long period of time, had had the, bu- uh, the bunker and the drills established. So we just, you know, okay, we know what we're doing, let's just carry on. So, uh, we, we, that evolved over time effectively to the point where they were very well established. Uh, I'm really glad that, you know, you like them. And if you use the drills, are you becoming an Abernethy dojo? Uh, most definitely not. Uh, I also, there's a difference in the way I do things where you've got, I say I've got the approach and the method. So my students who train with me, yeah, week in, week out, they're learning the method. Right, so this is how Ian holds a stance, holds a guard. This is the drills we do. Uh, this is how we throw a roundhouse. This is how we throw a reverse punch. All those specifics, they're learning the method. And then, like, uh, what I communicate through the podcast, the app, uh, the seminars, that's, that's the approach. So what I'm saying is I'm hoping these elements of this that you find useful in adding uh, to what you already do. I'm not looking for people to do what I do. I'm looking to help people do what they do. So, so if people, for example, Pinan Hian drills that are on the, uh, those DVDs, I say that's plug and play bunkai that. There's a lot of people that have, uh, got to grips with those things and just taught those drills in their own dojo, which have at it. But that doesn't mean they're doing what I do. It's just that they found those specific drills useful because they're not doing what I do in its entirety. They're just taking one element of it and that they found useful. And, and am I okay for people to use my ideas? Absolutely. You know, the, the whole point of doing what I do, I say, is to be helpful to people. And I've never understood this, but I'll sometimes get it. I'll teach a drill at a seminar and they go, are you okay for me to share that with my students? It'd be ridiculous of me to go, no, how dare you? Because, I mean, what's the point of them coming to the seminar, right? That they come to learn things that they, they can take away. And at a certain point, that they're not my ideas anymore. They're, they are their take on my ideas. You know, so, so, so at a certain point, people gain their own rightful ownership of them. So, so yeah, no, I, I'm always happy. I, I love it when people come to seminars and they say they've had a good time. That's great. I, I'm even happier when I hear from people and say, oh, that drill you taught us six months ago, we're still doing it. The students love it. You know, that's when I know I did good teaching that day. So the next question is from Ali Whittick. He says, how do you deal with the what if guy? So I, I think there's two what if guys. So the first what-if guy is the legitimate what-if guy. So if I show a technique and the guy asks, well, what if he moves in the direction? Or what if he's a little bit taller? Or what if this technique fails? In that case, what they're trying to do is understand and contextualize the technique or drill you're showing them. So in that case, I always give the answer. Now, now at some point, you know, the answer may be, well, you abandon what we're trying to do here and you do something else. You know what I mean? So that then do something else is always a legitimate answer. What you then have is you have the illegitimate what-if guy who is asking what-if as an alternative to training, okay? So these are normally, they're not real martial artists. They're people who reduce combat to an intellectual puzzle. So it'll be, well, if you do A, and they'll go, well, what if he does B? And then you say, well, you could do to C. And they'll go, yeah, but what if he does D? And, and, and then again, it, it's no longer trying to correctly contextualize a technique, the, the the running down this rabbit hole as an alternative for training. For that what-if guy, I'll normally answer the first two questions and then go, right, 
but okay, but this is what we're working now. So those are legitimate questions, but we're not working that now. We're working on this specific technique in this specific context. Uh, if that guy accepts it as an answer, wonderful. If he still continues the what ifs, I have to just reaffirm. We're not doing that now. We're doing this now. Because, again, the person who wants to endlessly analyze something as an alternative to train it, if they're not training it, they're never going to get good at it anyway. That what-if guy can end up monopolizing all of your time, particularly in a seminar scenario, and then you're not helping the vast majority. So, thankfully, those guys are few and far between. I find most what-ifers tend to fall in the legitimate category. Uh, if the illegitimate category, I think you have to cut them off at a certain point and go, now, this is what we're practicing now. Those are legitimate questions, but we're not doing that now. I want you to work this now. So the next question is from Brandon Fields, and Brandon asks, he says, how important is lineage in karate, or martial arts in general, when it comes to trust or credibility? So I, I'm going to say not very important at all, right? Now, lineage can be useful in uh, determining the level of instruction that a person has had. So, for example, if there's a, a, a very well-known martial artist who is a competent instructor and he teaches a person, awards them a rank, and then says, yeah, this person is a competent instructor, the fact they've been taught by someone who's very good and recognized by that person who's been very good has been very good themselves, that would tend to indicate that that person then is someone you might want to train with or under, right? So so it's not that lineage is entirely unimportant because good teachers uh, produce other good teachers, right? Where it's, it's not impossible, but it's less likely that a bad teacher will produce good students or even good instructors, right? So so in that sense, lineage is important. But, but again, the lineage should not be the measure because the measure should be is how good a teacher is this teacher, or how good a martial artist is this martial artist? They are, they're not good teachers purely because they have that lineage. And they're not good martial artists purely because they have that lineage. Now, that lineage may contribute towards those things, but it's not a guarantee of them, and it's not the best indicator of it. Uh, so you sometimes find people doing this, they'll go, oh yeah, I trained under Master X, or I trained under you know martial artist Z. But, so what? You know, so what? It, it, the, the, that in itself doesn't mean you're good. That person was good. It doesn't mean that you are simply because you trained with them. Good instructors have can have bad students, right? So in terms of you know how important is lineage when it comes to trust and credibility, not very, because you shouldn't base your value judgment of trust or credibility on the lineage alone. It might contribute to it, but you need to go, okay, is this person trustworthy? Is this person credible? Is this person competent? That's what you should be looking for, not the lineage alone. So the next question is from Mike Brown, and he asks, can I have more details on how the repetition by stealth method works in practice? So uh, for those who don't know what that is, I mean, I've talked about this at length at the seminars. This is the story behind it, right? So there's one uh, day I've been training with uh, Brian Seabright, great uh, British karateka, incredibly impressive. Uh, um, and we'd finished the training, and I, and I remarked how much I enjoyed training with Brian. I said, I said you know, I've been training with you for years now and we've never done the same drill twice and brian goes what are you talking about we do the same thing every week so no we don't i mean that drill today was new we haven't done that one before and he looked at me and said it's front punches reverse punches hook punches uppercuts knees elbows groin kicks roundhouse kicks side kicks he says it's all the same stuff all the time he says it's just repetition by stealth and when he said that i just loved the phrase so that i'm having that so repetition by stealth is when you get people to repeat something over and over and over again which competence requires, but you get them to do it in a way that they find enjoyable. So to give an example, right, if I was to say to my students, uh, I want them to work on reverse punch. So I'll go, right, grab the pads, hit the reverse punch 100 times or 200 times. It's boring. They're getting the repetition, but it's boring. But if I went, okay, let's do a drill on reverse punch. So I want you to uh, throw reverse punches moving left and right with your partner, and just adding that movement element in. And then I'll go, right, uh, I want you to um, work from within this clinch. Partner's got a pad on, uh, break the clinch, hit with a reverse punch, do a throw, do some kind of finishing hold. All right, now we'll do some physical.
physical conditioning so I want you to run down the dojo I want you to hit 10 reverse punches each hand I want you to run back do some press ups in the middle run towards the other end where you do some kicks on that pad repeat this process by either increasing or decreasing the number right so by the end of the night they've done a load of reverse punches but because the reverse punch was included in every drill but they don't really notice that they've done those hundreds of reverse punches. I've made it enjoyable for them. So that repetition by stealth thing is just trying to find ways in which you can get the numbers done. You can get the repetition done in a way that they find enjoyable. It also helps contextualize it in different ways as well. So they tend to understand the technique better than just mind-numbingly smashing away at things. So, yeah, so I, it's, it's difficult to give, like, concrete examples in this audio format, but that's, that's, all, that's all it is. The repetition by stealth idea is coming up with drills and forms of practice which allows a student to practice high numbers of repetition in a way they find so enjoyable they don't even really notice they're doing it. So next question is from Terry Mungsfield. He said, what's been your greatest challenge in teaching? Uh, easy, that. That's when I started teaching. Uh, I found it really difficult. Really difficult. Because I, 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 although I knew the technique well, I, I wasn't able to break it down very well. I wasn't able to communicate it very well. Obviously, I, I, I'd got good at martial arts for me, but that realization that people are built differently and learn things differently and been able to adapt how you do things for different people, that was, that was hard. So without a doubt, the greatest challenge for teaching was when I first started doing it. It was really difficult. Uh, and, and to be honest, I think I'd underestimated how difficult it was. This is where I've been lucky, really, I guess. I've had lots of good teachers who make it look easy. <laughs> so uh, then you start doing it. Oh, man, this isn't easy. So I, I, I got guidance from my instructors on how to teach. But I think over time, you've got to find your own style and your experience in your own way of doing things. But definitely, uh, yeah, the most difficult thing was, was, was when I first started doing it. I found it really hard at first. So the next question is from Cheryl, and she asks, how can she improve her retention rate in class? Uh, she feels she retains about 10% of the awesome stuff a, a teacher shows her. And she's, do you have any uh, tips on improving uh, your retention of information? The, 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 you know, everyone's different, but the thing I always think is useful, and I encourage my students to do, and I certainly encourage it at seminars, as people who've attended them know, is, is um, I think in any class, if you try and say, well, I'm going to remember 100% of this, or I'm going to get 100% of it right. Or you go to a seminar and I'll, I'll leave with all of it. You never do. It's just not the way that the human brain works. It doesn't record everything. So, so you know, 10% is, that's not too bad. <laughs> you know, and then the idea is that, you know, you do it again and again and again. And each time you retain a little bit more. So I think the first thing is just acknowledge that it's okay not to re retain everything. That, that it does take uh, an extended period. So maybe uh, having uh, a little bit more patience for the process, you know, is, is another thing. But the, the one thing I find can help is trying to identify every training session what the one thing you got from it was. Right, so if, if I train or go to a class or do something, you know, I'll leave and I'll have learned a hundred things, say. But I always try and go, okay, what was the main thing from today's class? What what did did I get? What did I learn? So it, it, it might be something as simple as, you know, oh, t today when I was learning that punch, I, I learned the importance of keeping that guard up. I, or I learned the importance of rotating that little bit more and just identifying the one thing. So you might not have picked up the entirety of the technique, but identify to yourself what that one thing is because then you acknowledge that you've got that. So the next time you go, you know, it, it's okay, what was the one thing I got this time? from that same technique. Well, you know, I'd maybe I'd reinforced a prior lesson or maybe I picked up a little nuance. So trying to identify that. So, so yeah, acknowledging that it does take time, uh, having patience with it, and then trying to identify, I think, you know, each training session. What is the one thing I retained and be, being okay with the fact no one retains everything. It's just not the way it works. So the next question is from uh, John Brinder. He says, how do you stay motivated as an instructor when members leave, especially in smaller clubs? So, so and I can get that. If, if you're you know teaching very small numbers and it seems like it's getting smaller and smaller, that can sap away at motivation. But there's a few things with that. Is that. The first thing is just acknowledge that martial arts aren't for everybody. You know, So sometimes people do it and they maybe do it for a few years or whatever, and then they decide they want to move on to other things. And, and that's okay. You know, that's, that's absolutely okay. Uh, I also think that having enthused students matters more than the numbers of students. You know, so it, it, it's better, uh, more enjoyable if you've got like three 
highly motivated students than if you've got a hundred ones who'd rather be doing something else. You know what I mean? It, it, it's that, that's the other thing. So it's not just the numbers. It's okay when people leave to do other things. Another thing I, I think is, is important is you, you constantly need to promote the club. Because I, I, I fell into that trap where I was happy with the numbers that we had. I was happy with the people that we did, we had. I, I stopped getting new members in. And then of course, existing members leave for work or they decide they want to do other things and the numbers start to drop off a little bit. Uh, and of course, you need numbers to practice with as well. So I've I've made a point now of promoting the club a little bit more, not massively because I don't want massive numbers. Uh, but if I every few months, if I get two or three extra students, that keeps us ticking along quite nicely. So in terms of motivation, I think it's you know get motivated students that helps no matter what numbers you've got. Realizing it's okay that people leave, it's not necessarily a failure as you as an instructor. Some people want to move on and do do uh, other things and keep trying to bring new people in as well. I think that that matters. So you've you've always got uh, a healthy pool of students. So the next question is from Dan Bryan. He said, regarding rank testing, should you maintain a rigid test criteria or can it be adjusted depending on someone's physical limitations? Uh, our uh, mission statement on our syllabus, for want of a better word, uh, talks about taking students to a level of individual excellence. So we're still looking for excellence, but we acknowledge that that can vary from person to person. So I think of one of the downgrades we got had very limited flexibility, you know, really, you know, limited flexibility. So our aim was this guy is never going to be a good middle level kicker. You know, I mean, even thigh kicks were a problem for him. So what we're going to get him to do is we're going to get him to be a fantastic shin kicker, <laughs> a great puncher and a, a superb grappler, which he became. So um, there's no doubt in terms of his, his combative skill, that man was a downgrade, right? You know what I mean? Now, if I'd gone, no, unless you can kick middle level, you can never grade, uh, I think that would represent a lack of my ability to teach the individual and a lack of my imagination. So, yeah, it can definitely be adjusted according to someone's physical limitations, but you still pursue excellence. So what you don't want to do is water down the standard to the point where it's meaningless. Go, oh, well, you know, that person's not very fit, so we'll make get fitter you know that person's not very flexible get more flexible that person's not very strong make yourself stronger you know we can improve our physical abilities but to a degree but you know there comes a certain point where you know people can't get physically stronger some people can't get uh, more flexible some people can't get quicker you know uh, so therefore you've got to go okay how can i still make them excellent within the limitations that they've got and i believe we can do that for pretty much everybody this is especially important as well when you've got people who have um uh, disabilities you know so so you know if you've got a guy with one arm you know what i mean then then you're gonna have to adapt that you can't say oh you can't do a two-handed shoulder throw therefore you can't grade you know you've got to go okay how do i get this person to be able to throw well with the limitations that they've got and i think a good instructor should be able to do that just as easily as a good instructor should be able to teach it tall people short people squatty people you know we've all got different builds we've all got different attributes and strengths and weaknesses so therefore we need to be able to teach that so yeah i'm not a grand believer in you know the criteria becomes more important than the student i think we're doing something wrong so we've got a related uh, question from tony smith of oklahoma where he tells us that his wife has arthritis in both of her hands she's also had uh, hand injuries in the past therefore she can't make a, a tight fist uh, and therefore throw a proper punch uh, and he says the, the answer is most likely obvious that a modification in a training uh, should include open hand strikes, palm mill, knife hands, etc. Would that be wise to tailor the kata to meet these needs or to go with another approach altogether? Well, again, this is the idea. The kata can't become more important than the individual. The kata is there to serve the individual, not the other way around, right? So uh, um, if your wife is not able to make uh, fists when she does a kata, then she should make another equally applicable hand formation and as you say you know if, if it's a forward strike do a palm meal instead if it's an arcing strike do a knife hand or a ridge hand uh, and when she comes to do the cutter then yes of course adapt the cutter you know ad ad adapt the cutter so it, it, she's practicing in a way that's relevant to her you know i often think when the style becomes more important than the, the individuals within it there's a problem there um so yeah tony yeah definitely do that you know i, I think you, you that that looks like a very positive way forward for me 
So the next question is from Gareth Piper. He said, how will you recommend going about introducing some more practical bunkai ideas into a setting where 3K karate is prevalent? Setting up your own training group, that kind of thing. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. It's probably one of the most common questions I get asked this, actually, because there is an art to it. Uh, so the first thing is, is, you know, is if you're, if you want to introduce the ideas to the group, it's rarely successful when you do it in a very revolutionary way. So if you go, uh, yeah, I've, I've, what we're teaching is rubbish. Let me show you how it should be done. We're going to do it this way. You naturally get people's backs up with that. So if you, if you want to change the direction of the group, a more gentle approach and letting the material sell itself tends to work better. So, for example, I know a guy who was really successful in this, and what he did was he would ask his instructor, he says, uh, I've seen some alternative bunkai to this. You know, so his instructor's teaching kick block punch stuff. I've seen some alternative bunkai. Would you be interested in me showing you this? So the instructor went, yes. So he did it, and the instructor went, oh, that's good. Can you share that with the group? But he kept using the word alternative bunkai, and in doing so, he's not undermining the instructor. So he's, 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 you know, he's not going, what well, the instructor teaches rubbish. He just goes, okay, the you know, we do this, but here's some alternatives. After a while, the group liked the alternative so much, and so did the instructor, that that became the mainstream way of doing it. And they jettisoned the, the more 3K stuff they've been doing. And it was because he took that gently, gently inclusive approach. Now, of course, not every group is open-minded enough for that. You will get some where you'll get strong dogmatic pushback. Now, if you find that this group is 100% dogmatic, they're not doing the kind of karate you want to do, uh, your best option is to then leave that group and find a group that does do karate in the way you want to do it. And to accept that that group has every right to practice karate how they want to do it. So if they want to practice it in an impractical way and it's what they want to do, well, that's up to them, right? You know, you don't have a right to kind of, I demand this group changes, right? So at some point you might go, okay, that's not what I want to do. I'm, I've, I've tried. It's not for me. I'm going to leave and do and go and do something else there's sometimes that middle ground though where you go the group doesn't want to practice the practical elements but they're nice people and i like spending time with them and it's a good workout and they teach kata really well and the good key on they've got there as well so you could say i'm, I'm going to keep training with that group for these things but I'm going to get the practicality from elsewhere. So that may be occasional visits to another dojo, a seminar attendance, or as Gareth alludes to, setting up your own training group. Now that can be a training group from within the group you belong to. So you may say to fellow students of that 3K group, who wants to do some pad work, some sparring drills, some bunkai drills, and, and you know then that little subgroup can work on those things together. Or it could be uh, reaching out, to people in the area my forums often used for that where people go i live in vicinity x who else would be interested in gathering together and doing some bunkai and i know there's some really effective training groups being established you know the, the one that jumps to mind is there's a, a group of friends i've got in germany who from all over germany uh, they get together and swap ideas every couple of months and they've been doing this for years so um, from from all over. So and and again, you know, the, the, there's a social element to it too. But they they swap information and then go back. So that that's another way in which it can it can work. So uh, yeah, lots of different elements to it. But yeah, I hope some of that was was of use. So as usual, we have some questions that don't quite fit into any of the categories, so we've got a small number of miscellaneous questions. Uh, first one's from Peter Murphy, he said, As a non-karateka, much of the karate-based kata bunkai drills are not really applicable to me, but I do find them interesting. What would you say are the key concepts for being able to apply that practicality to a variety of other traditional martial arts? For example, in my instance, Japanese jiu-jitsu. So I, I think, yeah, great question, because to, to me, this is why I always say, I'm a martial artist first, I'm I'm a karateka second, and I've no idea what style I am. Uh, that, to me, succinctly sums up my view of myself as a martial artist now I practice. Peter and I, Peter's a jiu-jitsu guy, and I'm a karate guy, but that's second. First and foremost, we're both martial artists. So, And, and there's certain commonalities that, that we will have. So that, it, that, you know, we will break balance in the same way because there's an optimum way to do it. Power generation will be similar. Uh, there are the weaknesses of the human body that will be both exploiting. There are tactical elements that will be the same. There are legal elements that are, that are the same. There are de-escalation skills that we'll both need to practice. For example, if we're doing a, the self-defense side of things. So they'll be far more in common 
than what separates us. It's not that we're doing something different. It's just that you choose to practice it in a jujitsu way, whereas I choose to practice it in a karate way. But but ultimately, we're headed in the same same direction. You know, it's, all, it's a well-worn adage, but you know, you know, many paths up the mountain, but we all see the same moon from the top, right? You know, and so we, you choose the martial art you like the most. But if you you measuring by pragmatic utility, at a certain point we all converge at the same places. It's just you know which which path did you find the most scenic and enjoyable, you know on on your march up uh, march up the top. So yeah, so in terms of like uh, principles and concepts, I think um, the, the the martial map idea still applies. There is definitely a difference between martial arts fighting and self defense, and we need to be uh, clear on what those demarcations are. Uh, I think that is a useful concept. The training matrix idea that every single form of training we do is flawed in some way. We introduce deliberate flaws in order to get um, specific skills developed and to ensure safety. And therefore, we need to do alternate drills that have differing flaws. So that way we cover all the bases. All that kind of stuff is universal, which is why I say I'm a martial artist first. You know, a karateka second, and I have no idea what style I am. So the next question is from Tim Hyde. He says, what's your opinion on uh, combining recombining karate and kabuto training uh, is there any benefit from it in your opinion i think that comes down to what your training objectives are so if you're someone who has a strong cultural or historical interest in the martial art who wants that traditional old skill set of having all the empty hand skills and all the weapon skills you're going to greatly enjoy learning sai Tomfa, Kama, Nunchaku, Bow, you're going to really enjoy that and get a lot out of it, right? Um, so there's, yeah, there's definite benefit there. If your objective is modern day utility in, uh, in self-defense, I wouldn't see there's any benefit in studying Kabuto. Uh, now, now, quickly people go, oh yeah, but a pulku is a bit like a bow, and you know, if you learn a sai, there's certain transferable skills to other improvised weaponry, to which my argument is, we'll train with the improvised weaponry. You know, so, uh, which I've done. You know, I've done cutter applications with a pen, or cutter applications with a, a mobile phone. You know, these are, these, that's the way to train, specifically train. Don't train with a sai, and then try and work out how a sai might apply to a phone. Use the phone. You know, um, so I think that that specific form of training's better. There's a friend of mine in the U.S. You know, um, uh, Christopher Fulmar, a great guy, really good martial artist. Um, he's, he runs uh, Budo Code. You know, the people I do the app with. Um, uh, he runs uh, American Defensive Arts. Um, really good guy. You know, uh, he does lots of stuff with the cane. So he's got pad drills with the cane. He's got like padded uh, canes that they use. Um, uh, every time I see what he's doing with it, it just fascinates me. Uh, and that, to me that's more useful to the modern day because there might be legitimate reasons for carrying a cane with you, especially in somewhere in the the, the UK where the weapons laws are very strict. Um, so if you were someone who had an injury or you were of a certain age, carrying the cane would be entirely legit. And then that's a weapon that you can use functionally. There's no legitimate reason for carrying kama. <laughs> <laughs> in, in a public place, you know, you can't get away with that, right? Um, also, you know, it, like for me, as someone who's, you know, healthy, I don't need a cane to walk, uh, but it does rain a lot here. So the cane, to a degree, you can substitute an umbrella for that. So you might use, you know, how would that work? as a bit of improvised weaponry as well, you know. So so I think there's, there's, there's benefit from studying improvised weaponry, but, but I think that should be stuff that relates to the modern age. And if you don't have that cultural or historical interest, I wouldn't say there's much value in studying uh, Kabuto. But if you do have those uh, cultural or historical interests, there's, yeah, there's got to be value in doing it. So it all depends on what your training objectives are. So the final question is from Claude Van Martin. He said... Uh, uh, not all households will welcome Santa Claus. What martial art is he trained in to defend himself, right? So I think we had a similar question like a few years ago, and I can't remember what I said. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, every house is going to welcome Santa Claus, right? Because he brings gifts. <laughs> Right, you know, he's a jolly chap. So his de-escalation is about to be superb. You know, so in terms of if anyone attacks him, Santa's in trouble, right? Because he's not in the best of shape. Uh, he eats way too many mince pies, and he probably drinks m way more than he should. So Santa's not going to be that effective physically. 
So I, I think for for Santa, it's going to be pure self-protection. What Santa's going to use is de-escalation. You know, that, that's what he's going to do. He's going to give you a gift. He's going to give you a big smile. He's going to give you that big hearty laugh, right? And Santa will make sure that he, all households are going to welcome him, right? You know, that, that, that that's going to be Santa's plan. You know, or, or failing that, he just sets the reindeer on him, right? <laughs> Rudolph, kill! You know, that'll be the way to do it, I think. So thank you very much for your support of the uh, podcast. I hope you enjoyed that. And thanks for your support in every way during 2019. It's just been it's great to be part of this community. The seminars have been awesome again. I really love spending time on the floor with you all. It, it, it's great. Uh, the community around the app as well. So grateful to everyone for your support of that. It's just been wonderful, both virtually and in person, just interacting with you all. All the people who travelled all over the globe to the residentials, that's been great as well. It's been a wonderful year for me. I re- really have enjoyed it. Not without its challenges, but it's been a good year. Uh, I became a dad again of course in 2019 we've got the gorgeous Sophia with us now this is her first Christmas this year so that's all wonderful and very exciting Uh, some unusual things this year too like in order to Brexit proof uh, what I do because obviously I'm someone who who teaches in Europe a a lot so effectively I'm a European service provider and that could be badly affected by Brexit so the smart thing to do the thing they advise you to do is to set up a business within the EU uh, that can cover that side of things because obviously that business still has access to the EU markets even if the UK one doesn't um, so, so yeah, I've been setting up a business in uh, Estonia. I've become an Estonian e-resident, uh, which is just a wonderful. I've really enjoyed that too. I, I've, I've met some Estonians <laughs> uh, for, who've helped me get get all that kind of thing um, set up as well. So that's unusual. As my dad remarked to me, it's one of these really bizarre things. He said, "You know, I bet when you took up karate, son," he said, "I bet you never thought you'd need to understand Estonian tax law in order to do it." <laughs> Uh, thank, thankfully, thankfully, I have people who can take care of all that for me and make sure everything's as it should be. But yeah, it's been a really unusual, really interesting year, and you know, I'm grateful to all of you for 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 being a part of that. So massive thanks to all of your support. Uh, I hope you've had a great Christmas if you listen to this afterwards. I hope you have a great Christmas if you're listening to it before. Um, yeah, thanks so much for your support, and I'll be back with uh, with more information soon. Okay, take care, everybody. Have a good one.